scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 32. But Jacob stayed apart by himself, and a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. When the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, let me go because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He said to Jacob, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with men and won. Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob named the place Peniel, because I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. The sun rose as Jacob passed Peniel, limping because of his thigh. You may have a seat. So we are in our second week of the Lent series, and uh, last week we found ourselves in Luke 4 in the wilderness with Jesus uh, during his 40-day temptation. And this week uh, we find ourselves again in the desert and um, following the life of Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the brother of Esau, um, the grandson of Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis. And I've entitled the sermon today, A Limp and a Blessing. It's kind of ironic because I have, for the last month, have had a limp because I've injured my calf and my Achilles. And so I've been limping along. And so the scripture has really kind of sat with me and I've kind of simmered in it and seeped in it. And it's had a lot of deep meaning for me. We need to take off or take off our false identity and put on our true identity, which is given by God. Take off your false identity and put on your true identity, which is given by God. Take off your false identity and put on your true identity given by God. And uh, at Renew, we like to talk about how we are real or we're trying to love our neighbors authentically. We're trying to have worship in authentic ways and be real. And sometimes real and authentic gets thrown around there these days, especially in kind of contemporary worship settings. What is real and what is authentic? Does it mean the way I dress or uh, the pastor dresses informally up here uh, instead of in a suit and tie? That's being real. We're the real church because our pastor is informal. Or is it because, you know, we use, uh, we don't use churchisms in our daily conversations, in our conversations on Sunday, we can say, hey, and give each other a high five. Uh, is that what it means to be real or uh, be a real or authentic church? And I think, I would hope that as Renew, our, our vision for being authentic or our value, our core value for being real and authentic um, in how we live our lives of faith and how we live as followers of Jesus has more to do with character and heart and soul than it does our kind of external preferences or external things. Um, I I recently saw the movie The Revenant. How many of you seen The Revenant? Okay, it's it's really intense. It's really good. Uh, if you don't like violent movies, then don't watch it. But The Revenant, uh, uh, one of the quotes in there is, um, "The wind cannot defeat a tree that's strongly rooted." Wind, something like that. The wind cannot defeat 
a tree that's strongly rooted. And my hope in this place is that we as a body and as individuals would be more and more strongly rooted um, in faith um, and in Jesus and in the scriptures and the word and in love. And, and that in doing so, in, in walking with God in deeper ways, uh, we begin to take off kind of the false externals and take on a deeper character um, that makes us more wholehearted people, makes us more open people, makes us more vulnerable people, uh, makes us more compassionate people, makes us better neighbors, etc., etc. So take off your false identity and put on your true identity given by God. In the ancient scriptures, we read a story of a family divided, a family that's dysfunctional. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of dysfunction, dysfunctional families, a lot of dysfunctional relationships happening. And kind of the whole notion that you have heroes of the faith with super, you know, extraordinary, like, faith lives that are heroes and we should model and emulate them is kind of a false nomer, right? Actually, people are really dysfunctional. The patriarchs are really dysfunctional and are messed up and jacked up. And so we, uh, Jacob's family, Isaac and Jacob, his son, and Esau, his son, uh, Rebecca, his mother, this family is, no, is not immune from that. They're dysfunctional. And this story begins with the birth of two boys, Jacob and Esau, and they're twins. Uh, and let me start at Isaiah, uh, Genesis 25, uh, verse 21, beginning in 21, just to give some more background uh, to our current scripture. But starting in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, since she was unable to have children. The Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. But the boys pushed against each other inside of her. And she said, if this is what it's like, why did this happen to me? So she went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair, a hairy baby coming out of the womb. And she named him Esau. Immediately afterward, his brother came out, gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Um, so my name is David, right? And it means beloved. David means beloved. And if your name was Amy, uh, your name would mean beloved as well. Does anyone else have a name that they know what it means? Anyone? Anyone? Go. Lover of horses. Lover of horses? Phil? Awesome. Ah, it's Greek. Yeah, Phil, love. Anyone else? Nathan. Gift. You are a gift, Nathan. Um, but for the most part, nowadays, you know, unless you or your parents were intentional about it and they know what your name means, we don't go around thinking about, oh, my name means beloved. Oh, your name is Joshua. It means whatever or this or that. Um, we don't think about the etymology or the meaning, the deeper meaning of names. Um, but back in those days, in the ancient days, 
names had meaning, right? Names had definite meaning, and people named their children um, based on character or kind of the circumstances that were surrounding them or what God, or if they were God-fearers, kind of the context in which they were placed in the narrative of God or what God was doing, what they were hoping God to be doing, what their prayers were. These were the names. And so Jacob, Rebecca, and Isaac were no, were no uh, different than anyone else. They named um, their children with meaning. And so what did they name Jacob? They named Jacob Liar, right? <laughs> Manipulator, usurper, one who grabs heels. Well, why would you do that? And, and part of the reason is in the very womb, right, as Jacob was being born, he's the younger twin. Esau pops out red and hairy, and Jacob's hand is grabbing his ankle, right? Grabbing his ankle, and he's like, you can see that that internal struggle that Rebecca was experiencing inside her womb was a real conflict, a real struggle. And I, in my mind, I just see kind of a wheel of fortune, if you will, like this this round and round and round and round they go. And that's kind of uh, the image I have throughout uh, this narrative is that there is a power struggle, a conflict, right? Two nations within the womb of Rebecca, and that was the prophecy, right? God saying there are two nations, the younger, the, the older will serve the younger. And so this is happening, and Jacob's name reflects kind of that desire to turn the tables, that desire to be first, that desire to rule over the older, to get the circle going, uh, to set in motion a revolution. And so this is why she names Jacob, Jacob. He's a usurper, one who grabs heels, a deceiver, a liar, right? Just think about if I, you know, whoever's named Jacob, right? Did their parents really mean liar? Hey, liar, come over here. You're a liar. Liar, why don't you clean up your room, liar? Right? Eat your spinach, liar. Um, no, we don't do that. But um, in many senses, back then, people were living into their names. Names had deeper meaning um, that were connected to our identity. And maybe we do nowadays have words or names uh, that we try to live into. Maybe it's not your real name. Maybe it's something like stupid or failure, right? Or, or something else like that. But we all have uh, identities. Um, and they, they're not true. They're not what we are really supposed to be about. Um, that we live into and we live out um, as if they were a curse. Um, so Jacob is a liar, he's a cheater, and we see this kind of develop, this theme develop in his life as he's growing up. Um, and one instance is chapter 26, uh, beginning verse 27, when the young men grew up, this is Jacob and Esau, Esau, came, um, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt, Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. So Esau was your classic man's man. He was red and hairy. He liked to hunt red meat of the bone. Right? And Jacob played his harp. He was a poet. He was a mama's boy. And this is how it plays out, right? Esau was the daddy's boy. 
Uh, Jacob was the mama's boy. He's domestic. He's an outdoors person. So they set it up like that. And then it says, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game. But, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Uh, once when Jacob was uh, boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. So Jacob is cooking food. He's watching the food network, you know, the cooking channel. He's cooking his food. Esau comes in from the hunt. He's hungry. He's famished. He smells. He's like, all he can think of is food, food, food. I want to eat. Right? Give me some of that red stuff. He can't even name it. That, whatever that is, red stuff. And Jacob, being the crafty person that he is, the manipulator, right, says, give me your birth, birthright. Right? If you sell me your birthright, I'll give you some of this stew. And he's banking on the fact that Esau is a man of his cravings, right? Is a man who wants something and gets something, right? Isn't like a forward thinker, doesn't know anything about delayed gratification, right? So he says, okay, just give me the food. I'm hungry. And he eats it all up. Um, and the scripture says, because he didn't, this is how Esau cared less about his birthright. Uh, but for Jacob, this was kind of another step towards usurping, right? turning things around, usurping his elder brother. Another instance, uh, he steals Esau's blessing. In that culture, the first son received the blessing from the father, the first son's blessing. All the other children did receive blessings, but it wasn't as important or as crucial or as big as the first son's blessing. Um, So if we read at the top of chapter 27 of Genesis, when Isaac had grown old, And his eyesight was failing. He summoned his older son, Esau, and said to him, My son. And Esau said, I'm here. He said, I'm old and don't know when I'll die. So now take your hunting gear, your bow, and that nice bow that I bought you for your birthday, and quiver of arrows, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Make me the delicious food that I love and bring it to me so I can eat. Then I can bless you before I die. But Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau went out to the field to hunt, a, the game, bring the game back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I just heard your father saying to your brother Esau, bring me some game and make me some delicious food so I can eat, and I'll bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. And they begin to plan right, and conspire for a way uh, that Isaac can steal that blessing. She ends up putting um, Esau in, or Isaac in Esau's clothing. And then Jacob's like, oh, but Esau's hairy. I'm not, I have smooth skin. And she said, oh, put this here. Here's some sheepskin, put it on your arms. Okay, he must have been really hairy. <laughs> um, so they do it. Uh, and Isaac ends up blessing Jacob. Isaac ends up blessing Jacob, and when Esau comes back and hears what happened, he's breathing fire and swearing vengeance. I'm going to kill Jacob for this. So you see, even Rebecca is a part of this kind of system, this dysfunction 
of manipulating, of usurping, of deceiving, of scheming and plotting. We, we never do that, right? We never find ways to get what we want or get ahead um, by conniving means, right? By conspiring, gossiping, drama. But so there's a lot of usurping, manipulating happening. Esau is very upset, and Jacob fears for his life, and Rebecca fears as well. So she's like, she comes again uh, to Isaac and says, I don't like the women in this area. Let, let's send Jacob back to my home country so he can find a wife there. And really, she wants to get him out of Dodge, right? Get him out of Dodge so Esau can't kill him. So, they, so Jacob runs goes to his mother's home country where he runs into Laban, his uncle. And, um, and that's a whole nother story. Because in Laban, Jacob meets his match, right? It must run in the family because Laban is totally dupes him and fools him into working not seven years, not 14 years, but 20 years. So Jacob falls in love with Laban's younger daughter, uh, Rachel, thank you. Rachel, um, but Laban says, okay, work for me seven years, and you can have Rachel. So after the seven years, um, Laban sends in um, not Rachel, but Leah to Jacob's tent. But I guess it was dark. He must have been maybe drinking or something. He didn't recognize her. So he ends up married to Leah. And Jacob's like, what have you done? I've worked hard for you for seven years. Okay, Laban's like, Laban's like the ultimate trickster. Work another seven years because it's not good for the younger daughter to marry before the older daughter. Okay, and so uh, Jacob really loves Rachel. So she does it. So he does it. He works another seven years, gets to marry Rachel as well. And an interesting side note in terms of names and children's names, if you look at Leah's, the older daughter's naming of her children, she has four sons. Right? So it says God closes Rachel's womb and said so God um, had compassion or considered Leah because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And God, his heart went out to, to Leah, so he opened Leah's womb. Uh, so the first son's name is Reuben. The Lord saw my harsh treatment, and now my husband will leave, love me. The second son, Simeon, he says after he's born, I'll name him Simeon. The Lord heard that I was unloved, so he gave me this son too. The third son, Levi, now, this time, my husband will love me, will embrace me since I have given birth to three sons for him. So each of the sons, right, they're not named liar or stupid, but they are kind of, the names are based on her love, her husband's love for her, right? Now, because I have these children, my husband will love me. But I think one of the most beautiful parts of scripture is the fourth son is named Judah, because she says, this time I will praise the Lord, right? It doesn't have anything to do um, with her husband or whether her husband will love her because she's having sons. But, man, I, I'm just going to worship God. I'm just going to praise God, Judah. 
And so there's power in the names. And in names, uh, we're either cursed or we're redeemed. Um, But finally, uh, after Laban convinces uh, Jacob to work another six years in order to take his daughters and his flocks that he's grown to to go to his own country to spread his own wings away from Laban, uh, Jacob actually comes out on top. He outtricks the trickster um, by manipulating basically the gene pool of the flocks. So he does something and ends up that his flocks are stronger, the speckled, uh, darker colored goat and sheep um, are, more, are more vigorous. They have lots of offspring. And so Jacob's flocks just grow enormous while Laban's are just kind of dwindling and weak. And so Jacob finally convinces his daughters, uh, his wives, uh, to run away from their father. Um, And so he runs. And Laban, Laban's sons are like, he took all of our flocks. He duped us. He tricked us. He took all the best stuff. He took your daughters. Let's go after him. And so Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob. And this is when, this is where we enter into chapter 32. uh, Jacob is running from Laban, but then he's going back to his homeland. And um, he says to his servants, go to Esau, my brother. Because it's been 20 years since I've been home. And the last time I checked, Esau was really mad. So I don't know how things are. Let's kind of just kind of check things out. So he sends his servants, and his servants comes back. Esau says, oh, Jacob is here? Let's go, let's go, let's go meet him. And his, uh, his servants come back and say, Esau is coming with 400 men. And Jacob's like, oh! he His heart, his stomach goes up to his throat. He freaks out. 400 men? He's totally going to destroy me. He's totally going to defeat me. Um, so Jacob begins scheming again, right? He's total strategist. He's a total schemer. He's totally finding a way to cut his losses, right? So he's, first he says, hey, why don't I just divide my, everything I own into two camps? Half of my servants there, half of my servants there, half of my flocks there, half of my flocks there, half of my children there, half of my children there, half of my wives there, half of my, my good wives over here, my good children over here. Um, and so if Esau attacks one, at least the other will get away, right? I knew a family who never rode the, air, you know, the same airline at the same time, right? Because if their airplane goes down, you, know, you don't want your whole family to go out. Or they drive different cars to places, right? If one car crashes, at least the other half. It's, you know, it's good math. But <laughs> it's good math. But so you see what he's doing? He's still planning. He's still scheming to, to survive, to get by. And, uh, and then next, he's like, okay, maybe if I slowly, gradually, in stages, appease Esau's heart, right? So that just kind of do a little heart massage. So he breaks up his servants, his wives, and his children, the, the half that he had remaining, in a, in a trail ahead of him, and he took the rear, right? And that was his plan is, 
And so maybe he's like, oh, I want that kid in the front, right? So he, he could die first. Or I want that, those sheep and those goats up there. He's, he's cutting his losses. And each time that Esau runs into a group, it'll be, and there'll be servants behind that group saying, oh, this, what it, Esau's like, what is this? Then the servants would say, oh, this is from Jacob. This is a gift to you. It's yours. And then Esau would be like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then gradually the hope was in stages, Esau's anger would be soothed. Again, kind of crafty thinking, you know, kind of trying to get his way, trying to get out of the situation. Um, So at last, um, what happens in our scripture is he got up during the night, took his two wives, his two women servants, his 11 sons, and crossed Jabbok's river. So he's down to his kind of core family. Um, And he took them and everything that belonged to him, and he helped them cross the river. But then, in verse 24, Jacob stayed apart by himself. And a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. When the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, let me go because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. He said to Jacob, what's your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with men and won. Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel because I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. The sun rose as Jacob passed Peniel, limping because of his thigh. I mean, the first question, this is a really odd scripture, and and there's all kinds of interpretations out there. First of all, what's difficult is, is Jacob wrestling an angel, or is he wrestling God? Or is Jacob wrestling, it says, it starts off Jacob is wrestling a man, a man who couldn't overcome Jacob, right? But then all of a sudden, is, it, is the person he's wrestling God? Um, does God end up blessing him? Is it an angel? Is it God? Is it a man? So that's what makes it confusing. The other thing is, I think it's, God, it's kind of man, and then it becomes, it's God, right? Um, but why did God wrestle Jacob? In my eyes, this seems to be like a physical play acting out of Jacob's prayer prior to this. And what Jacob prays is a prayer of frustration. When my father blessed me, when I received the blessing, you said that you would make a great nation out of me and my descendants would be like the sand, right? would be like stars in the sky, just like he told um, Abraham, just like he told Isaac. And I've worked for 20 years, and now my brother wants to kill me. I'm facing my death. So what is this? What happened to the blessing? 
Um, so I think it's an actual physical acting out of Jacob's own intercession, his own prayer. And it's not like a nice prayer, like, God, thank you so much that I'm a privileged person, right? It's, God, what's going on? I'm at my wit's end. I don't have anything. There's nothing in my means or control that I can do. I have nothing left to do to fix my situation. But yet there's this promise. You said, you said this, that you would bless me. Although I did manipulate for the blessing. <laughs> it seems like a play acting of Jacob's prayer, this wrestling. It's a marathon. A marathon of a wrestling match. It could be like an image of how we should pray. Right? How we should struggle with God. His prayer is a plea to God in frustration, definitely in fear and anxiety. In verse 11, it says, Save me for my brother Esau. I'm afraid he will come and kill me, the mothers and their children. You were the one who told me, I will make sure things go well for you, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. So many you won't be able to count them. I thought I got a blessing, God. Didn't you say? I thought I worked so hard for it. Mom and I worked so hard for that blessing. I was crafty. I thought I had your blessing. Uh, but a prize won through conniving is a prize that can never be enjoyed. It picks at you. It eats. Jacob had tricked his way into position into privilege. He had worked it, work it, used his skills, and now he was the one on the run, still trying to work things, splitting his camp, sending flocks and servants in groups. To the bitter end, he's pulling every trick in the book to cut his losses, to appease Esau. Left to his own devices, he's done pretty well for himself. He's run the races, albeit taking shortcuts and cheating, and won most of those races. But everything has caught up to him. He is now facing Esau and his 400 men. He cannot turn back to Laban, the place he just fled from. The trickster is cornered and will now be held accountable. And he prays. He finally prays. He takes some time alone in solitude, face to face with who he is and who God is. He's at his wit's end. He's desperate. He fights and will not give up or give in. The wind cannot defeat a tree with strong roots. The man cannot defeat Jacob. So he strikes his hip. The cost of blessing is that we limp away because it is in the limping that we embody our need for God. Let me say that again. It's in our limping, in our weakness that we embody our need for God. Jacob needed to be slowed down. Jacob, the king of tricksters, was cheated against by a dirty move. Here, let me pull your thigh out of its socket. And yet Jacob would not let go. Right? God out-tricked, out-cheated Jacob, right? Oh, I'm not going to win this wrestling match. We've been wrestling for a whole night. Here, let me just jack up your thigh. 
That's a dirty move. Uh, actually, as a side note, God tricks people? God cheats? And sometimes in our kind of Christian mindset, we're like, oh, you can't do that. But I've heard people say, isn't Jesus the ultimate undermining? Right? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the greatest trick ever in the history of the world. Right? And all through scripture, you see the ways that God uses people in the margins or people like Jacob or people from the side to undermine kind of the status quo um, and continue the narrative of God's work in the people. Right? God isn't always in the dominant narrative. God is sometimes in the trick narrative, right? Um, the underneath. Um, but that's another sermon or actually another lecture probably. Um, uh, Jacob won't let go. Isn't this precisely the nature of intercession? We rail against God in our frailty and finitude, desiring him to change things, perhaps even change his heart and mind and heal, transform, lift, or provide. God is omnipotent, right? He can do anything, right? He doesn't need us, and yet in prayer we wrestle with all our might, and somehow this moves God is moved by our prayers. So strange. Also in wrestling with God and, and losing, because God cheats, we find our true identity. We are renamed, not in human terms, but we are given a new name by God. No longer are we usurper or ankle grabber or liar, but we are a new nation, a people blessed. A bless a people blessed in order to be a blessing to others. And we can't forget that that's the rest of the blessing. It's always been the rest of the blessing for Abraham, for Isaac, and now for Jacob. Not just, oh, you will be blessed and your family will be a great nation. It's you will be blessed, your family will be a great nation, and you will be a blessing to other nations. Right? Um, take off your false identity and put on your true identity given by God. Um, take off your false identity and take on your true identity given by God. And it's in the wilderness and wrestling with God when we're stripped away of things, when we're hungry and thirsty and longing, when we come face to face with the reality of who we truly are, um, empty-handed, that we can begin to receive the gifts of God and the name of God and a new identity, a true identity, saying this is who you are, and we can stop fighting in our life. We can stop conniving. We can stop grabbing and grasping, right, and manipulating and using people but we can just receive things as gifts from God and then we can turn and bless, right? It's hard to give away something if you've worked so hard to take it for yourself, right? If you've worked hard to take money and steal money and just grab money, are you going to give it away? There's like all kinds of, this is a side, there's all kinds of uh, studies that show that people with a lot of money tip less. Give less, 
right? It's like, why do people with a lot of money tip less? Right? Because there's an entitlement, right? This is mine. Why would I give it away? Um, and for us, in our culture, I think we, most of us are very accomplished people. Right? We have a lot of education. We probably grew up making the grade. We're perfectionists, right? And so we're used to product, right? Our effort and then product. We work hard, right? We use our mind and our resources and our talents and gifts, and we get things back. And I think that's what makes it so hard for us to be empty-handed, right? And to come to a place where we're like, I need you, God. Right? What is my name? Amen? Um, and so my hope for us is that in this Lenten season that we will wander through the desert with Jesus and wait um, for his resurrection.